Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at current events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now. This episode of All Things is brought to you by Crossway, publisher of the new book, Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age by Samuel James. With advancements in internet technology, people can get instant answers to just about any of their questions, connect long distance with family and friends, and stay informed with events around the world in real time. In Digital Liturgies, tech realist Samuel James examines the connection between patterns in technology and human desires. Everyone longs for a glimpse of heaven. He argues they are just looking for it in the wrong place, the internet. Samuel highlights the inherent dangers of digital technologies, offering wisdom for navigating our internet-saturated world. This accessible book offers a biblical view of the internet and technology and is a great resource for college students, parents, and pastors alike. Pick up a copy of Digital Liturgies wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org forward slash plus and get 30% off with your Crossway Plus account. So on this episode of All Things, we're actually going to chat with author Samuel James about the internet, technology, smartphones, and all of that. I know this is something that interests all of you because whenever I do an episode about smartphones or screen time, I get a lot of feedback from all of you guys. You probably have a smartphone in your pocket right now, and you're definitely connected to the internet as you listen to this show, and I'm connected to the internet as I record it. So I know it's something we are all pondering all the time. This is our reality. We are always connected. And we're navigating it not just for ourselves, but also for those that we love. I mean, we're worried about our own souls, our own daily lives, but also that of maybe our older parents or the accountability of our friends and peers, people that we care about, um, and definitely our kids, our teens, our young adults, our youngest children. All of us are online all the time. So specifically when we talk to Samuel, we're going to ask how that connectivity is shaping us, how it is affecting us, our brains, our souls, everyday life. But before we hear from him, I wanted to present you all with some of the data, some numbers and research regarding just how connected we are and how it's impacting us. Okay, so in 1997, that's actually the year after I graduated from high school just 26 years ago, about 21% of Americans said they had used the internet in the last three months. I remember as a freshman, the internet being totally new. We would go to the computer lab, we would dial up, um, and it was a struggle to get news or even to send an email. We definitely were not doing our research papers online as you can do now. So that was 1997. Picture it with me. One in five Americans using the internet in the past three months. So by 2007, fast forward 10 years, that percentage was up to 75% of Americans had used it in the last three months. By 2018, Over 85% of Americans, or about 250 million people, were using the internet at least semi-regularly. And now, 85% of U.S. adults report being online every single day, and about 30%, a third of us, say that we are online almost constantly. So in one generation, we've gone from most of us not using this technology to almost everyone using it. It's a massive shift for humanity, which is hard to really see and feel because we are immersed in these changes as they take place. So you probably know this, I bet you've heard this before, but even though we are now connected more than ever, 
we are lonelier and more isolated than ever. According to many studies, there's so much data out there about this, teens and young adults in our current American society feel significantly lonelier and more isolated than generations prior. So what do you guys think? Are real friendships a thing of the past? Fewer young adults actually in wealthy countries, not just the United States, but wealthy developed countries around the world are choosing to not get married and to not start their own families. Some are delaying it. Some are skipping it altogether. But meanwhile, when it comes to the internet, it's never been easier in human history to connect with another person, to have a relationship with someone who's very far away or to connect with someone right here, to hook up with someone right here, to do business with someone who's very close by. So connectivity is up, but so is loneliness. Here's an interesting quote from Elon Musk. He says, to some degree, we are already a cyborg. You think of all the digital tools that you have, your phone, your computer, the applications that you have, the fact that you can ask a question and instantly get an answer from Google and other things. Musk rightly observes that we're all very dependent on the internet and all of our digital tools. I know I am. Musk argues our digital dependence is effectively already part of our neural biology, so our brain makeup affecting the way we think. He points out that our digital selves will outlive our physical selves. He said, if you die, your digital ghost is still around. All of your emails and social media, they still live even if you die. Okay, Nicholas Carr, he is the author of the book called The Shallows, um, which is about the internet. Um, He wrote an article prior to The Shallows for The Atlantic back in 2018, so 15 years ago. And the article was entitled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? In the article, he laments how his brain had changed. He could no longer concentrate for long periods of time or think deeply as he once could. He blamed his digital connectivity. The scrolling and options and windows to click were reforming his brain such that deep thinking was becoming less and less doable. I can relate to that too. Can you guys? Well, in 2018, research out of the United Kingdom shows that people now check their phones on average every 12 minutes during their waking hours. 71% of people say they never turn their phone off and 40% say they check their phones within five minutes of waking up in the morning. Okay, here's another new term for you, maybe continuous partial attention. This is a phrase that was coined by the ex-Apple and Microsoft consultant, Linda Stone. She says by adopting an always on, anywhere, anytime, any place behavior when it comes to the internet. We are in a constant state of alertness. We are always scanning, always skimming, always checking on things, but we're never really fully giving our attention to anything. This full-on connectivity is obviously affecting not just our ability to concentrate, but it's affecting our sleep, our work, our physical health, our relationships. Here is something interesting that I learned from Samuel's book. Parents are increasingly aware of how bad digital connectivity is for their kids, especially in Silicon Valley. It's becoming routine there where all of the tech executives live and um, inventors. It's becoming increasingly routine there for parents to have their nannies sign a no phone use contract. So here's a quote from Lynn Perkins, the CEO of Urban Sitter. She says, the people who are closest to tech are the most strict about it at home. Nannies must agree not to use any screen for any purpose in front of the child that they are caring for. 
Well, moving on from young children to older kids, I have really appreciated and benefited from the work of sociologist Jean Twingy over the last several years. I've quoted her in my books and on this podcast. She documented the rise in teen anxiety and depression in her 2016 book called iGen. So iGen includes Americans born in 1995 or later. Twingy says there's a, quote, epidemic anguish in this generation. Listen to these numbers. 56% more teens experienced a major depressive episode in 2015 than in 2010. And 60% more experienced severe impairment. So just in five years, depression went up 56%. Serious impairment went up 60%. In 2007, about 0.8%, so not even 1% of females ages 12 to 14 died by suicide. In 2015, the number for the same age group was 2.5%, three times. Twingy says, the sudden sharp rise in depressive symptoms occurred at almost exactly the same time that smartphones became ubiquitous and in-person interaction plummeted. Twingy has a new book out this year. It's called Generations. In the book, she analyzes mental health trends for five different age groups from the silent generation. So those are people who were born between 1925 and 1945, all the way to Gen Z. So those who were born between 1995 and 2012. She shows definitively that the way teens spend their time outside of school fundamentally changed in 2012. In 2009, only about half of teens used social media every day. In 2017, 85% used it daily. By 2022, 95% of teens said they use some social media, and about a third say they use it constantly. So 95% of teens are using social media, and about 33% say they use it all the time. Now, in the most recent data, 22% of 10th grade girls, so we're talking 15-year-old girls, spend seven or more hours a day on social media, which Twingy says means many teenage girls are sleeping, going to school, and going on social media. Twingy says every indicator of mental health and psychological well-being has become more negative among teens and young adults since 2012. The trends are stunning in their consistency, breadth, and size, she says. So since 2010, anxiety, depression, and loneliness have all increased amongst teens. And it's not just that symptoms rose, but also behaviors, including emergency room visits for self-harm, for suicide attempts, and completed suicides. This data only goes through 2019, so none of this discouragement is related to COVID-19. Parents, and I'm speaking to myself, I've got one teen left at home. We have to be so vigilant and so careful with the decisions we make about our teens and phones and social media. I'm just not sure it's worth it to grant this kind of access to digital connectivities for our teens. Of course, teens are not the only ones shaped by the use of social media. I am sure everyone listening to this has felt discouraged or angered or triggered by social media at some point. I know I have. Tristan Harris is a former Google engineer who has become very critical of social media's effect on us. I read about him in Samuel's book. He explains how social media algorithms are designed to keep us scrolling and engaged by overwhelming us with negative emotions, anger, disagreement, outrage, fear. These things keep us scrolling rather than logging off. 
Things that anger us get the most clicks. So the artificial intelligence of the algorithm knows that. So the more outrageous or the more upsetting the content, the more we stay online. And then whatever outlet produced that outrageous content gets the most traffic, makes the most money from both users and advertisers. Our clicking because of fear or our clicking because of anger reinforces the algorithm so that every time we log on, we get more of the same. In fact, social media definitely wants you to keep scrolling or scrolling. Maybe you have heard the term infinite scroll. This is a neurologically influenced web tool. So it's a tool that that has been influenced by the way our brains work that rewards users as they dive deeper into a feed, giving us new sights and sounds as the page grows. Samuel James says this makes the web an endless novelty machine. He says, emotionally numbed by endless scrolling, the human heart tends to become inclined toward that which simply offers a dash of color to an otherwise drab listlessness. The Wall Street Journal actually recently did a deep dive into TikTok's algorithm. Turns out it's highly sophisticated and the app captures even when you pause momentarily while scrolling. So if you pause even just for less than a second, that triggers the algorithm to recommend more videos like that. Additionally, the Wall Street Journal found that the TikTok algorithm pushes more sexual and adult content, even when that kind of content is not initially recommended. It's the design of TikTok that individual accounts are led gradually to more extreme content on the app. And of course, pornography is one way to keep people hooked online. According to Statista, three of the top 20 most visited websites in the world are adult sites, accounting for over 4 billion visits every single month. Oh man, this is a lot of heavy data. Well, let's turn now to my conversation with Samuel. We're going to wade through these realities, which if I'm honest, feel so discouraging right now. If you can listen all the way to the end, because Samuel is going to close us out with some really helpful gospel truths. He's going to remind us that while the technology is new, our God is sovereign and he knew this was coming. He gives us his word and his spirit so that we can navigate these modern day realities with wisdom and truth. Now let's listen in. Well, welcome everybody to All Things and Samuel James. Thank you so much for joining me today on this podcast episode. We're so glad to have you. Thanks, Jen. I'm really glad to be here. So Samuel, you and I know each other through um, Crossway as you're an editor and I've written for Crossway, but you have written a book for Crossway now. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Um, It's a book called Digital Liturgies. And it's something I find myself coming back to time and time again, just this theme, this topic of how am I using digital technology well? Is it using me? And I know our listeners are really eager to dive into this conversation also. So before we get into it, though, could you just introduce yourself? Where are you? Um, What do you do every day? Why do you care about digital technology and our souls? Give us the, the introduction. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Jen. Um, yeah, so as you said, my, my name is Samuel James. I'm Associate Acquisitions and Developmental Editor at Crossway. I've been at Crossway for six years, um, half of which I spent in Wheaton, Illinois, which is where we met uh, near the Crossway offices. And for the last three years, my wife, Emily, and I have been living with our kids in Louisville, Kentucky, which is our hometown. 
We go to Third Avenue Baptist Church here in Louisville. And uh, yeah, I've been thinking and, and writing about this particular topic for the last few years. I think uh, I think particularly drawn by some of the things that I've seen in the church and in American culture, uh, especially maybe around 2016 and kind of the political landscape that uh, seemed to uh, really become more explosive. And then just kind of noticing some of the ways in which uh, social media in particular was kind of alluring me and people close to me to say and do and think things that were um, not something that we would otherwise feel or think. And so just been thinking about that in the context of the life of the church and then broadening it out, especially in this book, to to consider what the Bible says about wisdom and how uh, living wisely might be challenged by the kind of technology that we just take for granted that that we instinctively give our attention to each day. Yeah, good. Well, I know that that's something everybody listening, I mean, most people are probably listening on a smartphone, even as mm-hmm. we speak. So I know this is something they care about. They'll probably click out of here and go check social media. <laughs> so <laughs> this is a conversation that's really relevant for all of us. Um, Samuel, I'm wondering, have you ever known life without access to the internet. Can you personally remember a time before you Googled something or before you had social media? Yeah, I definitely can. So I'm, I'm one of the last generations that um, can remember a time before, before the internet. So my family, even by generational standards, was pretty slow on the uptake. We, we were a, a pastor's family in Owensboro, Kentucky. And uh, you know, we lived in the little church parsonage. And I, I remember very clearly the, the first kind of time that the internet came into our home. I was probably like 11 or 12 uh, and it was dial up, you know, and everybody yeah. is, well, not everybody listening to this, but people of a certain age will remember just that unique crinkly sound and the, the white noise of, of trying to uh, trying to log on through your phone line. And, you know, our, my sisters and I would fight over who got to use the computer because that would tie up the phone line. So you're, you're taking two kind of social, uh, social <laughs> tools at once. Um, so yeah, I, I remember a time without the internet, uh, especially without social media. I joined Facebook, which was the first real kind of social media platform that I, I got involved in. I, I joined that senior year of high school. Uh, and so I, I know very plainly what it is to kind of have a social life and uh, interact with people when you can't just like go up and look up their profile later or, right. you, you know, you have to call them or if you if you want to to tell them something. I, I didn't I didn't text until I was um, I think a senior in high school, actually, as well. Yeah. So a lot of things happened senior year. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I remember very clearly what life was like before these technologies just kind of created this uh, instant connectivity to anybody I knew. Yes. Okay. So in a minute, I'm going to ask you, you know, are we the better for it or worse for it? But before I do that, and I know that you're going to give me a complicated answer to that question. (laughs) That's right. We have, you know, 25 more minutes to talk about it. Um, I want to share and listener, I want you to lean in as I read this, because Samuel identifies or defines the internet or maybe social media like this. And it's a, it's a really helpful definition. It's one I read and reread multiple times, but I think it really helps us sort of um, conceive of kind of what you just described, 
the life that's embodied and sort of in real life, and then the life that we live online. So this is what you how you define it. The disembodied electronic environment that we enter through connected devices for the purpose of accessing information, relationships, and media that are not available to us in a physical format. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Because that's that's a lot to hear at once, but walk us through a bit what those words mean. Yeah. Um, so disembodied obviously refers to something that doesn't have a physical character. So that's that's the internet, right? So uh, when I when I log on, whether I'm using social media or email or streaming, um, obviously these images and these videos and even other people are being represented to me, even though I'm not in the same room. I don't have proximity to a lot of this content. I'm I'm not. Uh, in the same room with this person, or I'm not right next to this uh, thing that's being filmed. So there's a disembodied quality to it. And then we enter into that environment through connected devices. And and so these devices can be different. We can enter it through a computer that has to be plugged into a certain location. And that was most people's experience of the internet for a long time. Uh, but then with Wi-Fi, now it becomes very mobile and we can enter into these spaces whenever and wherever we are uh, with through phones and things that uh, we can carry with us easily. Um, so in order to, to kind of define what the web is, and I, I think in the book, I, I make a distinction between the internet and the web. Most people are going to identify what I'm talking about as the web, social media, websites, that kind of thing. Um, but the web is, is kind of downstream from this broader technology that says, uh, use this technology and you will overcome the limitations of your physical place. You can go uh, and experience things that are far away uh, from the comfort of your own home, or you can have kind of this relational proximity with someone who is not close to you. Um, and so very close to the heart of, of understanding this technology is to understand the way it completely collapses distance. Uh, and it and we become disembodied as we enter in into it and we can seek out anything from movies and music to other people and to even worship services. So um, yeah, just understanding this technology as being uh, something that takes away our bodies. It's kind of separates our, who we are as, as mental people from who we are as physical people. I do think that is really helpful because how much time do we spend, you know, thinking about curating, creating our presence online, and yet that's not actually our real life. And so it, it does kind of blow my mind when I step back to think about it, that I'm going to go online to have this relationship, or I'm going to go online to um, present this idea, but it's not actually in my body right here in my space. Um, and this is just a little thought that sometimes I have that's a bit off script. So forgive me, we can always edit it out if this goes poorly. But <laughs> Samuel, sometimes I wonder about this same thing when it comes to like the invention of the car or the mm -hmm. airplane, you know, that people, they existed in their bodies, but also in their communities or on their farm or in a physical place. But then we bring along this technology that removes us from a physical place and puts us in another physical place and our bodies are there, but we've been removed do you see that connection? Like it sort of feels like that is this, but like 2.0. Absolutely. Yeah. Th there is an important continuity between um, technologies that displace us and that yeah. uh, kind of move us into different locations and kind of enable kind of a, almost a super physical kind of presence uh, and the internet. And 
uh, Marshall McLuhan, the, the technology critic, um, you know, made the observation that, you know, the jet engine is a radical uh, kind of displacing technology. It, it creates, it, uh, it creates a plausibility. So because of the jet engine, I could live in Louisville, Kentucky, but work in Chicago, Illinois, or even Los Angeles, California. And so the idea of the world as kind of being this inaccessible thing because I am here rooted in Louisville, Kentucky, that whole idea is rendered obsolete mm. simply by the technology of a jet engine. And the same is true of obviously whether the telephone and uh, railroads and things like that. But I think with the internet in particular, there is a uh, there. This is just happening at a much wider scale, and it's happening at a more immersive scale. If I if I use an airplane or or a train or something like that, certainly the world now feels smaller, and that creates a different kind of culture. It kind of creates a different relationship we have to to space and geography and the the concept of home. Um, but the difference with the internet is is that I can literally enter into any environment mentally. Uh, at any time. And I don't have to even exert physical effort to do it. I don't have to buy a, a ticket. I don't have to be on a plane. And so the sense of being transported, the, the sense of, oh, I'm actually leaving this place to arrive at somewhere else, that sense is being uh, completely flattened by how this technology absorbs us. And so I, I think while there is continuity between older technologies and the way they kind of create this flat disembodied world, um, the internet kind of takes these dynamics and does something way more immersive with them. Yeah. I think that is so fascinating to consider. And just thinking about how it's the Lord who determined when and where we would live. You know, he gave us these bodies and he put us in these specific places. Right. And yet we're going around that, whether it's with the jet engine or the internet and not that it's, um, you know, I'm not trying to make a value statement on it necessarily, but I do wonder, and, and this is my question for you that I said I wanted to ask, like, are we the better for it? Is is this a net positive or do you think it's a net negative when you sit back and think about it? Yeah. And here's your complicated answer, right? right. <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah. I, I, really, I, I really don't know if the issue is one of better or worse. Um, so one thing I try to express in the book is that technology is non-neutral, but that doesn't mean bad. Mm -hmm. um, the reality for us is that information technologies, technologies that kind of directly affect how we learn and how we communicate, they shape us in fundamental ways, even if we're not aggressively consuming them. So simply because you and I live in a culture that is shaped by these things, we are kind of absorbing the assumptions and the intuitions and the belief systems that come from these technologies that are kind of embedded into them. And whether you and I, you know, are able to kind of separate from this and build, you know, little analog lives for ourselves and, you know, a farm somewhere and just kind of reject technology, even if we could do that, that would not change the kind of world that we live in. The, wor the world we live in is just permanently shaped by this. And so for me, it's, it's less an issue of saying, oh, this technology is is bad or this technology is not bad. The reality is that it, it just shapes my life. And so I'm mm -hmm. trying to interrogate the ways in which these assumptions, these mm -hmm. abilities might be kind of tilting me away from the kind of life that the Bible calls me to. Uh, and in that sense, it's, it's very similar to kind of deconstructing a, a culture and to try to find the places in a particular culture mm -hmm. that are 
um, kind of more resistant to biblical wisdom. And that's that can be true in any culture. It can be true in, mm-hmm. in any type of, of uh, group that you find. Uh, but we're just trying to interrogate that rather than think in binary terms of good or bad. Right. Which is really counter to our current moment. And, and that's just <laughs> yeah. evidence that we've been shaped by the technology around us. Because I think probably... I'm guessing, uh, I don't know, I haven't done an exhaustive study on that, but I think our nature is to want to pigeonhole things or to categorize things, put them in a nice, neat column, right? Um, But, and it feels like now more than ever, we are drawn to that quick answer, you know, cancel this, but don't cancel that and say it like this, but don't say it like that. You know, we have our black and white and yet really very few things are black and white and it it's mm-hmm. requires this deeper thinking and these deeper conversations. Um, well, I know you could go on for much longer than time permits, but can you just share with us some of the ways that we are being shaped? You know, how, how am I impacted by the digital technology that's all around me? How has it changed me for the better or for the worse, or, or maybe even take those words right out of it, but how has it shaped me? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And and the book kind of talks about five different ways in which um, the assumptions of digital technology have uh, shaped how we think and how we feel. Um, so I think one of those that a lot of people can identify with is just the outrage and the kind of uh, refusal to think carefully about things. And I, I think this is reflected, even even despite our best efforts, we tend to gravitate toward kind of this reactive thinking. Uh, so if somebody posts something that uh, I don't like, well, my assumption immediately is to make bad inferences about this person. This person has gone liberal or this person has gone fundamentalist. Uh, and so kind of this highly reactive, highly explosive way of thinking rather than just kind of carefully parsing through things, uh, and especially when we consider the, the social uh, aspect of, of the internet and how seeing, okay, this person liked this status. I don't like this person. Therefore, I don't like the status. And like that is that is really a major problem in, in a lot of Christian culture is just kind of trying to, to think carefully and wisely about things rather than letting kind of our, our animosities and our associations, guilt by associations do our thinking for us. So I think that's one thing that we're, we're all kind of dealing with in one way or another. I think another way is just through the, uh, the way that many of these technologies kind of stir up discontentment and a feeling of dislocation. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether that's, you know, you're, you're getting on your app and you see pictures of beautiful families and everyone just is smiling and loving each other. And, and even if you're not consciously thinking this in the moment, it kind of lodges in the back of your head. That's not me. Like yeah. that's not my family. Something yeah. must be wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this this sense that there's something wrong with my life because it doesn't look like this perfectly consumable package. And all the while, you're not even uh, conscious of the fact that you know this was a photo that was take number sixteen. You know, and everybody had to be put in the right spot. Or even worse, Jen, yeah. it's a sponsored post, and this was all created by some company as an advertisement. Uh, and so just the, the way that this kind of seeps into our emotional life, I think is, is another way. Um, and one other thing I talk about in the book is, you know, we're, we're, we're very conscious of, you know, purity online and, and we know what that means and we know the importance of, of consuming 
uh, the right thing, not the wrong thing. But we, I don't think enough of us have considered that the act of consumption itself yeah. is a problem. And we're, we're living very consumptive lives. And, and that's what I mean when I say in the book that, that the web is pornographically shaped. It doesn't just mm. contain pornography that we need to avoid. It, it contains a logic to it to where I can actually take people's lives and experiences and I can kind of consume them. I can I can consume their suffering. I can consume yeah. their questioning. Uh, I can even consume other people in a kind of weird friendship sort of way. Like I can I can watch people from afar and kind of imagine that I'm relationally close to them when I'm not. Uh, so I, th I think that's those are three ways that the internet has has really challenged all of us and, and is shaping us actively. Well, and I absolutely see myself in all three. I mean, I mm -hmm. am absolutely guilty of going, oh, she or he liked that. So therefore, or <laughs> feeling right. discontent or jealous of somebody else online and thinking there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with them. Um, and also just the consuming, you know, sometimes I wonder, am I exploiting this person's suffering? Am I exploiting this story for my own mm -hmm. entertainment value or to make my own statement? Um, I sometimes, frankly, just feel so paralyzed. You know, you're a writer. You are somebody who contributes to um, public conversations on Twitter. I think you're a great Twitter follow um, for anybody who, listening who, who has Twitter or X or whatever we're going to call it now. Um, <laughs> Samuel puts really thoughtful stuff out there, which is usually not the case on Twitter. So, um, you know, but we, even though this is where you and I work and live and this is kind of our calling or whatever – everybody's doing that in some way. Most people mm. are. There's very few people who've said, you know, I'm just completely offline all the time. Right. So my question for you, like my, I'm personally wondering, Samuel, how do you handle that? Or how do you, what do you say to yourself? I think, what are some of the things you rehearse, you know, as somebody who comes up with ideas, thoughts, and opinions and puts them out there, why do you decide at the end of the day that it's worthwhile rather mm. than retreat what is that tipping point for you that makes mm -hmm. you stay yeah i think that's i think that's an important thing for everyone to think about and and i want to be careful here because you know some people will listen to this and think uh i just i just want a quick answer i want a pat answer just yeah. tell me what yeah. to do and i'll do it and i and i understand mm -hmm. that and mm -hmm. um but the reality is is that jen you you and i and everyone listening to this God has given people in our lives that can help us see our own hearts and our own sinful proclivities and what we need better than any blogger or podcast can do mm. or any, even a book. So honestly, I, I think the, the first thing I would say is that, um, you know, to the extent that, that me or anyone else can, uh, can kind of interrogate the people around us who are in community with us and say, Hey, do you think, do you think I'm using this well? Or do you think I need yeah. to kind of pull back? Or do you think, think what I'm saying here is true and fair? Or do you think I need to kind of rethink this? I think that kind of transparency is really important. Um, but for the ones who do stay for the ones who, who try to contribute to, to kind of online conversation in this way. Um, I think one of the reasons we do it is kind of what I was talking about earlier is the fact that we just live in a digitally connect connected world. And this is simply true of the vast majority of our neighbors. Like they are, they are inhabiting these spaces. They are thinking, they're thinking, uh, kind of internet shaped thoughts. And so the challenge is, well, how do I, how am I faithful in Babylon? Right. How, mm -hmm. how can I be faithful in this space? And so I, I feel like the Lord has, 
at least for this season, has kind of helped me see that the, the message in the Digital Liturgies book and kind of what I write about online, um, it's I'm writing to myself as much as anyone else. I'm writing reminders uh, about what it means to to think wisely and to to think like a Christian. And so I'm constantly having to to be called to repentance. I'm constantly having to kind of check myself against my. I didn't write this book because I'm an expert. I didn't. I don't write anything because I've I've aced it. This is all kind of scripture that I'm preaching to myself and you know, maybe this brings somebody else in to consider these things for the first time. But, but I, I think we're, we're just kind of living in light of the world that we're in and we're trying to, trying to be faithful to Christ in our generation. That's, that's all we can do. We can't turn back the clock. We can't get in a time machine. We can't put Pandora back in her box. Um, the most we can do is uh, to be faithful with what Jesus has given us in the time that in which he's placed us. Mm, that's really good. You're preaching a good sermon there. And I, you know, so often on this podcast, we, we cover current events and trends through a Christian lens. Um, and so a lot of the times, you know, I'm dealing with big things, you know, maybe it's mental health or suicidality or, um, you know, gender roles or misogyny. I mean, it feels like sometimes where there's a, these big concepts. And so often the conversation comes back to what you just said is that God is faithful and he's given us a community and it's important to know and be known. And it's important to just be shaped by the word of God and the people of God and the spirit of God. So I appreciate that. And you're right. There's just no pithy answer to that. Um, and it comes back to just being faithful with what the Lord has given us. Um, let's take a little break from this this really deep heart work that we're doing here. Let me ask you a couple <laughs> lighthearted questions. I would Great. love to know what you think about Twitter turning into X, what you think about threads, and I really would like to talk to you about what you think about chat GPT. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, um, tell you what, give me a minute and I'll type, <laughs> what should I say about X or threads into chat GPT? And I'll just okay. read that back to your listeners. Okay. Let's uh, do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So about Twitter and X, like I, I it, it feels to me, uh, it feels a little bit to me like, I don't know. I don't know how to say this. I, we can edit this out if, if it's no good. <laughs> we can. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I'm not trying. I'm, I just don't want to get in trouble for saying this. Mm. I think Elon is going to sell. I think mm. he will. I think it's, I, I think what we're seeing is somebody who paid a lot of money for something that is just not that useful anymore. Uh, wow. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's not, it's not a money-making venture. And I think all this rebranding is just, trying to put lipstick on the pig. Hmm. Um, and so I, I don't really think, I don't think that what we're seeing right now is how things are going to be in the next few years. I, I think, I think we're, I think we're going to see Twitter change hands in the not too sure. distant future. Um, and I could be wrong about that. And sure. Um, Time will tell, but it's interesting, yeah. you know, this one, this piece of this technology, this place we go, this online platform where we gather that um, has yeah. been so addictive and has consumed us right. and we've consumed is now like, well, maybe on its way out. It's a good yeah. lesson. Yeah. And it, you know, Twitter, but Twitter is, is a unicorn because no other social media platform had this kind of weird relationship with journalism, which is why right. it kind of became yeah. the water cooler for evangelicals. Um, That's what I've said too. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and really there's no other platform that do it. And so to answer your second question about threads, 
you know, when threads debuted and people were, you know, jumping on it and it was like, okay, Twitter's finished. Like this is new. Well, so I, I, I saw a graph the other day that said, you know, the first week, uh, threads had 44 million active users the second week it had 24 million active users and the third week it had 13 million active users so so like the 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 initial rush to to join threads has just completely died down and and we're seeing we're seeing i think how like you know 2007 2008 2009 that's not coming back you know, the, mm. the, the idea of starting this social media kind of social media platform, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's done. I just don't, I don't think it's hard to generate interest in something that is Twitter derivative or Facebook derivative, you know, and there's a reason TikTok is, you know, the most used social media app in the world right now, I think, uh, because it's, you know, it's different. It's video. That's, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's just completely different. So, but yeah. so about chat GPT, um, yeah, I've I've got some I've got some pretty like cranky views about ChatGPT. Oh, me I, too. Welcome. Yeah, let's hear. Yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean I kind of think like and I have I have buddies who disagree, but sure. I'm I'm kind of of the opinion that I just think we ought to refuse to use this. Yeah. Like I I think we ought to just say no, no thanks. And I yeah. I understand that it's it has some some really valuable uses especially for kind of the information industry and kind of parsing through um you know big data sets and there's there's different kind of uses for it um but i mean what what we're seeing right now is we're seeing a lot of enthusiasm for the idea that this machine can think for us mm. and and we're seeing people just kind of give themselves over to that and say hey like we don't we don't have to make art anymore we don't have to make music anymore we don't have to write sermons anymore like we've got all of this stuff and i think i think you know institutions and uh groups and colleges especially should just say hey like we appreciate that this exists we appreciate that we're not going to prevent it from existing but as far as we're concerned like we're not going to we're not going to use this we're going to rely on on human intellect and human ingenuity to to create stuff so I'm, 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 I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty cynical toward chat GPT and more cynical than a lot of my friends. I I understand the the arguments for it, but what, what do you think? Yeah, no, actually I have the exact same experience. I'm far more cynical than a lot of my friends and my kids and the conversations that I have about it. I actually have not used it yet. I've not, I don't even know like where you go. I don't know. Is it chatgpt.com? I don't, don't even answer that. I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, because I have seen people use it and they're like, see how great that was. And I, and my feeling is like, you I'm like that machine just thought for you and you, it would have benefited you to do the work on your own. And so, you know, you and I are writers. So we value that process of thinking through how am I going to say something? So having a machine say it for me or anybody really grieves me. Um, but something that, you know, I have older kids than you, and they go, they have gone to a Christian high school, but it has made me so angry, Samuel. They have to have phones. There's no, mm. almost no way. I mean, it'd be a ridiculous process to get around not having a phone in the classroom mm. because in every class that they go to, they have, they do different like games online, different like quiz drills or different really? you know, programs that are online and they turn in all of their papers by scanning them with their phone. They turn them in electronically. They never give their teachers papers. Their teachers never give them papers. Um, 
and this is very typical. This is the normal, like my kids aren't outliers. This is all the high schools, you know, the vast majority of high schools. But as you said about college, I would love nothing more than to, okay, that's hyperbole. I would really like to see um, schools say, bring your paper and pencils and that's how we're going to get it done today. And I think that's exactly what needs to happen. Yeah. That's amazing about your, your kids' schools like that, that I'm just trying to wrap my mind around that and and what a, what a radical shift that is. And, you know, and I I don't know, I'm sure you've seen the, the data on retention through physical note-taking versus computer typing. And it's incredible that the difference, Mm -hmm. how much better students retain stuff when they take long hand notes. Um, so it's like, okay, I I think that should matter a little bit. Like I think the convenience of the technology should probably not be the last word. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, it makes you, it makes you kind of eager for a, for a different way. It does. It does. I know. And I, as you, as you said, we, we are maybe different from our peers and I realize I sound like a really cranky old lady at this point, <laughs> so I should just stop. Um, but Samuel, thank you for this conversation. I appreciate in the book and in this conversation that you have been, you know, really willing to look at what is beneficial and what is not beneficial, but also just let's have the conversation about how it's shaping us. You know, mm-hmm. who are we becoming in this cultural moment? I think there's almost nothing more important than talking about that. How is our world shaping us and what is God calling us to? He placed us in this time and place for a reason. Mm-hmm. And so we do, we have to pay attention and exegete the world around us and and honor the Lord in the process and love our brothers and sisters. Can you close us with some gospel hope? I mean, yeah. even even in the course of our conversation, I'm, you know, feel a little down about technology and I don't want to leave. <laughs> I don't want to stay there. So send us out with some gospel hope when it comes to this. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, you know, what I what I've told people before is that as I did the research and did the work on this book, the one of the biggest things that I found was how perfectly scripture anticipates all of these dynamics. And it's because the Lord knew that this technology was coming. He knew what we would do with it. He, uh, he permitted this to, to be created. And in fact, there is a, um, there is a godwardness to this technology. It's it's made from the things that he put in the ground. He's sovereign over it. Um, but I, I think what I took away from that was that for all of the things that we have to think through that seem to be unique to this digital age, uh, all of the wisdom that we need is in scripture. It, it mm. anticipates all of this so perfectly. All of the things that I talk about in the book are they were they were in the scriptures first and i think it's really important to believe that to yeah. to think to feel in our bones that christ has uh, that christ is himself the fullness of god's wisdom for us mm-hmm. and that we can walk wisely it's not impossible it's not a question of well if i become this overwhelmed by secular culture or technology then i, I won't know what to do no christ himself Christ in us, the hope of glory. He became for us wisdom from God and, uh, and righteousness and sanctification. Um, so I, I would really just urge everyone, regardless of of what your past looks like with this technology, where are you kind of on this journey? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to change? Just embrace the fact that uh, the wisdom of Scripture is completely sufficient to live wisely and faithfully in this digital age, because it is. Mm-hmm. 
That is a good reminder. God's word will never pass away. May we hold tightly to it. Samuel James, thank you for this conversation. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jen. Hey, thanks so much for listening to All Things, where we look at current events and cultural trends through a Christian lens. All Things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.